You are listening to content from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. For more information, you can find us on the web at ChristOurHopeAnglican.org. And now, here's today's message. So we're continuing to look at Isaiah, our Old Testament readings, through the season of Advent. Um, And so the reading that we heard was from Isaiah chapter 11, and it begins with a stump. A once towering tree has been cut down, and the only sign of life is a small shoot that is growing up out of it, a single fresh branch that gives hope to those who look upon it. It's easy enough to tell you that the tree represents Israel, and the new shoot that springs from the root of Jesse is Jesus. But in order to understand the full significance of this vision, we actually have to go back to Isaiah chapter 6. Now, Isaiah 6 has one of the most spectacular scenes in all of Scripture. The prophet Isaiah is caught up in a vision and finds himself standing before the Lord of hosts. And God is sitting on his heavenly throne. And far below him, Isaiah can see the temple, the place that is the seat of his earthly glory. The temple is a place in the Old Testament where anyone who wants to enter must first purify themselves in order to be able to come into the presence of the Lord. The priests who serve in the most holy place which represents where God's glory is seated, have to make sure that they have followed all the proper rituals where they know that there is a risk of being struck dead when they walk into the presence of God. If they are not holy when they come into His presence, they will die. And then Isaiah's vision, as he looks upon the earthly temple, what he sees is that this place that is so filled with God's glory really contains only the hem of His robe. His glory and His majesty are so far beyond anything that anyone can imagine. And all about the throne are flying strange creatures, the seraphim. They have six wings. Two pairs of wi- one pair of wings covers their face, and another pair of wings covers their feet in deference to God's holiness. And with the others, they fly about and they sing a song Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah recognizes his own peril. The priests are not even supposed to walk into the temple without being cleansed. And he just says, woe is me, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And so one of the seraphim grabs a pair of tongs and takes a coal from the altar that burns continually before the Lord. And he touches the coal to Isaiah's lips and says, Your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. And so Isaiah is made holy for God. And then he hears the voice of the Lord saying, Who shall I send? And who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here I am. Send me. Because of that last line, uh, this passage is often read at ordinations. 
uh, here I am, send me, being something that hopefully anybody who is rising to the calling that God has placed upon their life is, is able to say those same words. But when Bishop Ken, actually that was, this passage was read at my ordination as a priest, but when Bishop Ken is, was preaching, he pointed out the irony that this passage is so often used at ordinations, because what happens immediately next is what sets up Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah is given a message to the people that he's supposed to bring to them, but he says, you're going to be preaching my word to the people, and they are going to completely ignore you. Instead, this message is going to be given to them, but God is going to give them up to the hardness of their hearts. Already in the book of Isaiah, we have seen so many ways in which the people of Israel has not been faithful, and God says their hearts will continue to be hard. Your message will fall on deaf ears, and the call to repentance will instead become a promise of judgment. We look through what has already happened up to this point in the book of Isaiah. We see that the people will be judged for their sin. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 4 says, Ah, sinful nation, people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They are filled with sin, and so they will be judged. They will also be judged for their failure to do good, to seek justice, to rescue the oppressed, to defend the orphan, and to plead for the widow. All of those show up in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. And it's not just what they do or don't do. It's evidence of something greater. The real problem is that the people of Israel have not been who they were supposed to be. They're supposed to be a holy people set apart for God. Just as Isaiah in that moment was made holy and set apart for God, the whole nation is supposed to be holy and set apart for God. The nation of Israel is supposed to be living in such a way that they reveal to the nations God's true character, that they can look upon, the nations can look upon Israel and see this is who God is because of the way that he has set his people apart. They're supposed to be the conduit of his blessing, not just the recipients of his blessing, but they are supposed to receive the blessing of God so that they can bless the nations. But they're not doing it. They are failing to live up to the identity that God has called them to. We see this all throughout the book of Isaiah. Several times there are these metaphors that are used to speak about the identity of God's people and their failure to live into it. So in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2, God calls the nation of Israel his children, but he says that they are rebellious children. And of course, with the verse we just heard a little bit after that says, you're now the children of evildoers. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 21, it says that you were supposed to be called faithful, and instead you've been a whore. In Isaiah chapter 5, There's this extended metaphor where God says that you're supposed to be my beloved vineyard that was going to bear good fruit. And instead, I have done everything for you. I have given you everything that you need. And you're producing wild grapes, bad fruit, something that's not good to eat. And so when we have this passage in Isaiah chapter 6, where he sends the message... It's told to bring forth a message to God's people. What ultimately it says is that the judgment of God will come upon them. And there are two different types of judgment that are declared. One is literal and one is metaphorical. 
The literal one is he said, the land that you're in now is going to be desolate. It's going to be empty. Your houses that you live in, are, there's no one is going to live there because you're going to be carried off. He's promising that the people of Israel are going to be taken into exile, removed from their land. And then he says, though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. So there is this image of the nation of Israel as a once great tree that the Lord in his judgment will chop down. And then even the little bit that remains will be burned so that it cannot grow again. The judgment of God is complete. It is a picture of utter desolation. Except that there's one small sign of hope in Isaiah chapter 6, because it ends and says this kind of strange phrase when it stands on its own, the holy seed is its stump. And then we see that same stump again show up in Isaiah chapter 11. So when we are talking about this stump that has a shoot growing out of it, this is the stump of Israel, and they have been destroyed by God's judgment. They have been leveled by his judgment. But there's a glimmer of hope, because from that charred stump grows a single branch, a sign of life in the midst of death. It says that it is, a sh there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David. So there's this promise that there is going to be someone who comes from David's line, from the once great dynasty here, that there's going to be the restoration of it in some way. But the strange kind of thing happens actually in this verse, in this passage that we read, because the tree was the nation of Israel. And yet when it grows back, this is not symbolizing the nation growing back, because what you find out is that everything that Israel was supposed to be is now going to be fulfilled, not in a nation, but in one man. It says, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt around his waist, and faithfulness the belt around his loins. So where the people of Israel were rebellious, this one man is going to be faithful. Where they were unrighteous, walking in whatever was good in their own eyes, he will be filled with the fear of the Lord. He will walk in righteousness. Where they failed to execute justice, he will do so perfectly. 
He shall decide with equity for the meek and the poor, and with the wicked he will judge. He will be everything that the nation of Israel was supposed to be. Theologians will sometimes speak of the scandal of particularity that is inherent in Christianity. It's this idea that we are somehow arrogant or, or perhaps just not seeing the way that things actually work because we claim that salvation for the entire world comes through one man and one man only, that there is no other way apart from Jesus. And that is not a popular message in our world. But this is not a message that comes from pride or a sense of superiority. Throughout Scripture, this is a message that is given out of God's grace. Because all of humanity was created to reflect the glory of God. We are supposed to be those who bear the image of God, who show to the world when they look at us what God is like. And Adam failed to fulfill that purpose. And then as you go through the book of Genesis, there's... lends and swells into this growing sin until the world is wiped away in a flood. And there's maybe this hope that maybe Noah can be the one who will be the new Adam, who will walk in the way that Noah, that God intended, because he was righteous in God's sight. And then as soon as the flood is over, there is talk of Noah's sin and debauchery. And Noah failed to live up to that. And so a little while later, God chose Abraham and said, I will make you the one through whom I bless the whole earth. And Abraham had great faith, but he also sinned and fell in many ways. He was scared of his own life more than he was scared of the fear of the Lord at key moments. And he was not the one who would be righteous. And God said, I will still keep my promise and rose up from Abraham, the nation of Israel. And he gives them his law and says, Here, I will show you how you can live in a way that is keeping with my holiness. I will show you what you can do. I'll lay it all out before you. I'm giving it to you from beginning to end. This is what you do. And we see over and over in Scripture and in the condemnation given by the people, by the the prophets like the prophet Isaiah, that the nation of Israel did not live up to who they were supposed to be. Even in their heyday, in their mightiest moment, David, the man after God's own heart, he sinned. He lusted after Bathsheba and killed her husband so that he could take her as his wife. And his sons soon gave up the worship of the Lord. But God did not give up on his people. And where so many had failed, he said, I promise that I will send one who can be faithful. And so he sent Jesus, the very Son of God, God incarnate, who is the true Israel. Jesus, who is the true Adam. Jesus, who fulfills the promises of God, who who 
lives into the faithfulness of God so that all might be blessed through him. That was always God's intent for his people, that they would live in faithfulness so that he could bless others through them. And Jesus is the one who did it, who is faithful from beginning to end. And look at what happens. The language that we saw about identity here in the book of Isaiah is perfectly reversed in the life of Jesus in the New Testament. Because he is the faithful son of God, and not only is he the son of God, but as he gathers disciples around them, he teaches them to call God Father. And he says, I'm restoring to you your identity as sons and daughters of God. You are children of God as you are supposed to be. And then Ephesians tells us where Israel had played the whore and not been, un, not been faithful. Jesus is presenting, is working in the church to make them his pure and holy bride so that she can be presented to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Where Israel was an unfaithful vineyard producing bad fruit, Jesus comes to his disciples and said, I am the vine. You are the branches. Abide in me, and you shall bear good fruit. It is in Jesus that God has restored to us who he intended for humanity to be from the very beginning, so that we can reveal his glory to the nations, so that we can live holy lives that speak of his divine majesty and the goodness of his character so that we can live without being under the yoke of sin, so we can seek mercy and do justice as God desires. This church is who you are. This is your identity at its very heart if you are in Christ. You have been made holy, just as surely as Isaiah was made holy. You have been set apart You have been given a call to show God's holiness to the nations with the way that you live. The hopes of a nation and of the world were fulfilled when God himself came to do what we could not. And he has brought all of us in him to participate in his glorious purposes. Thanks be to God. This is why we wait to celebrate the day of Christmas is because there's this longing and this hopeful waiting that happened for so long. It was 700 years between when Isaiah made his prophecy and when Jesus was born. They waited for this one and we remember that wait and we proclaim with hopefulness that God has done it. God has fulfilled his purposes in Jesus Christ our Lord. We also wait because the time of waiting is not complete. And here's the paradox of Advent and even the celebration of Christmas. We are celebrating the fulfillment of our hope that God has done what he has said he would, that he has brought Jesus into the world so that we could have our identity restored. But we are also waiting for its completion. This is the second half of the Isaiah chapter 11 passage. Because what it pictures is the sort of kingdom that this new Messiah, that this new king will usher in. 
And it's a place of perfect peace. The imagery here is amazing. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the wean child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. I have a memory from when I was a child that I'm not sure actually happened. Um, it's one of those things that I look back on and it seems so ridiculous that I think it must have been in a dream or something. But still, I have this memory of we lived in a condominium complex and going up near the front of the condominium complex to work with my parents for like we did work days to help take care of the grounds together and finding a hole in the ground and hearing a rattle in it and telling my parents I think there's a baby in the hole. Whoops. Uh, this is in South Carolina. There are plenty of rattlesnakes around South Carolina. I remember being taken away from there quickly before I like stuck my hand to play in it. Basically, we're not at the stage where the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and that's okay. Right? We are, we're still waiting for that day where we can have confidence in that. We're not in a place where there's a place of perfect peace. We know that by looking at the world and the news. I know that from stories from your families that you've shared with me. The ways that the righteousness of God is not lived out for all. The conflict that comes up. I know that even as we are here in this Advent season, there are some of you whose hearts are torn as you think of your children or your brother or your sister or your mother or your father. And we are waiting for the fulfillment of this promise. When Jesus was born and when he walked upon the earth, there's the promise that the kingdom of God is breaking in. But the promise throughout the New Testament is always that the kingdom of God is already, but not yet. That it has begun, but it is not complete. And so, just as the prophet Isaiah had to wait before he would get to see the shoot to come forth from the stump of Jesse, he lived all his life waiting, hoping, praying, and knowing because God told him right up front that what he was going to see instead was the judgment of God's people. And yet he held on to hope that the one would come. And God kept his promise. He came. Jesus came and he was faithful and he was good. And God will keep his promise as well.
to usher in His perfect kingdom. And we wait and we hope and we pray. We may not see it in our lifetime. We may die before we see the restoration of all things. We may see judgment of God come upon us and our nation. But because he has sent Jesus, we do not wait without hope. And we know that his promises are sure. And we know that there is a sense in which the already is here and in which you live not just in the kingdom of this world and all its destruction and sorrow, but you live already in the kingdom of God. That you have been brought up with him in Christ. This is the promise of Ephesians, that God has already secured all of his promises for you in the heavenly places in Christ. That your hope is sure. That you can be confident that God keeps his promises. And even when the world seems to be descending into madness and moving further and further from God's intent, we know that the one that they waited for so long ago, he came and he will come again. And so, because of that, we can wait with patient endurance for the day when He will set all things right. And patience does not mean passive, because we can be a people who shine with the glory of God because He has given His Spirit to us. He has brought us into His kingdom. We can be a people who seek mercy and do justice and know that it has real lasting good if it is done in the name of Jesus, because it is under Him that all things will eventually be put into place. But we also know that the hope of the world rests upon Christ and not on us. So remember that. As we wait in Advent, remember that we wait with hope. And remember that we wait as those whose identity as sons and daughters of God has been restored. As those who are not under the yoke of sin who can live a life that is filled with God's glory so that we too can be a blessing to the nations. Place your hope in Christ and wait for Him. This sermon is an audio ministry from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. If you are in the area and would like to learn more about how you can worship with us in person or online, please visit us on the web at www.christourhopeanglican.org.